Well, it's great to see everyone here. We'll uh, continue through our journey through the book of Romans. So it's been quite eye-opening and also quite convicting at the same time, as well as very encouraging. So this week we are in chapter 4, and we're going to start chapter 4, just cover the first three verses. I've called this, Abraham is declared righteous apart from works. So we'll pray, then we'll get into it. Father, thank you that you have shown us this truth, Lord, that we are all justified or declared righteous before you in your court of law, declared innocent by faith, by simple belief in what you have done for us, by accepting that gift. And Lord, we just thank you as we study your word and it shows it to be true in many different ways. And so we can be confident that if we are humble and receive the gift, then we're saved. Lord, that's it. It's so beautiful. It's so simple. And so we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I've got a verse we're actually going to cover next week, but it sums up the first three verses. So basically, here's a summary of the first three verses, which is verse 5. Can we read it together? But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So today is all about Abraham being justified by his faith, but Paul then moves on straight away and says, if it's true for Abraham, then it's also true for us as well, yeah, for every other person. So, that's the good news. All right, let's do a memory verse. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Awesome. All right, we'll jump into the uh, introduction. So in Romans chapter 3, what did Paul show? We have a sinful nature. And because of that, we, by nature, are sinful. We have this tendency to do the wrong thing. And so what the law does is it shows up our sinfulness. It shows up the fact that we naturally tend to lie, naturally tend to be selfish, naturally tend to be the opposite of who God is. So the law's purpose is not to save, but rather to point out that we need to be saved. The mirror shows us that our face is dirty, but it can't clean our face. And so Paul has demonstrated that there's only ever been one way to be saved, and that is by grace through faith. And that's even in the Old Testament times. And one of the verses we looked at last week, or the week before, Romans 3, 21 and 22, which summarizes this fact that everyone is saved by grace through faith apart from the law. And it says in Romans 3, 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Now, who is it for? To all and on all who believe. So even if you're living in Old Testament times, you're still saved by grace through faith, yeah? 
So Paul's going to now use David and Abraham as examples in the Old Testament of how people were saved by grace through faith. So Abraham lived before the law was given. You know, the law was given at Moses' time, about 400 years before Christ came. But Abraham lived like a thousand years before Christ came, maybe more. He lived in the time when there was no written law, the old covenant law. So both Abraham and David did a lot of good works, but what we're going to find out is that none of those works had anything to do with God declaring them to be righteous. God imputed or credited his righteousness to them apart from their works. And as we learned last week, the good works were the result of their salvation and not the cause or the root of it. So let's jump in. Let's read Romans 4, 1-3. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So why did Paul choose Abraham? Why did he choose Abraham as his case study, so to speak? You know, he's like a lawyer trying to build his case. So Abraham was physically, humanly speaking, that's what it means by according to the flesh, right? Abraham was physically or humanly speaking the father of the Jewish nation. So an easy read version, the NLT says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? Right. So Paul is going to use him as an example of an Old Testament saint who was justified by faith. And again, why did he use Abraham? Well, he was the first Jew. He represented all the Israelites. He's the father of the Jews, the Jewish nation. Right. So if it's going to be true for Abraham, then it's going to be true for everyone else. And from the Jewish perspective, he is the most esteemed and respected man. He is the hero of the Jews, yeah? They all look back to Abraham and revere him. Now, in verse 2, it says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. So I'm going to focus in on these words, something to boast about. All right, Paul is making a point here. What does our sinful nature love to do? It looks for something to boast about, right? We want to boast about ourselves. We are always looking, because of our sinful nature, if we are led by our sinful nature, for ways to cause others to look at us and say, oh, you know, something like, wow, isn't he amazing? Or look at the important position he has in the church. Or isn't she so spiritual? Or what a humble man he is. Or look how good he is at playing basketball. Or look how nice she looks, you know, whatever it might be. So simply put, all of us, when we walk according to our sinful nature, naturally look for ways to make people see us as being someone we are not. So why is it? Because our sinful nature is selfish, our pride causes us to focus on ourselves, right? And then deceives us into thinking that we are more or less than what we actually are. And this becomes our identity, it becomes who we are. All right? So we make our own identity instead of looking at the Bible and seeing what the Bible says about who we are. It's very dangerous. We either try to make ourselves look better or worse than what we really are. Now, if we're seeking attention in the form of praise, then we talk ourselves up and try to make ourselves look better than what we really are. You know, I'm such a good parent, husband, worker, 
you know, especially compared to those other people, you know, how we do that sometimes. On the other hand, we can go the other way and look for attention in the form of sympathy. So we feel sorry for ourselves. Now, I'm not saying we should never share your problems, all right? But there's a time when, with our sinful nature, we use sympathy to try and just get people to feel sorry for us, yeah? So we feel sorry for ourselves, we indulge in our own miserable pity party and talk ourselves down, you know? We say and do things to try and make ourselves appear worse than what we are. You know, people might say, I can't sing, I sound awful compared to others. Or I'm so useful at parenting, I'm the worst parent in the whole world. And there's all kinds of things we do to make ourselves look bad. And we can flip between the two at a moment's notice, you know, depending on what people are thinking about us at the time, how we can get more attention, you know. So what's the opposite of pride? What's the opposite of this boasting attitude, yeah, of seeking attention? Well, it's humility. And humility can be described in two ways. So firstly, if pride is attention-seeking, then humility is attention-giving. So the opposite, yeah? In other words, humility is us living by the power of the Holy Spirit and being others-focused and not self-focused. The proud or selfish person is only focused on themselves, either seeking attention in the form of praise by you know, making themselves look good or seeking attention in the form of sympathy by making themselves look bad. So what this means is that the proud person is oblivious to the feelings of others. He doesn't notice how others are feeling. Again, why? Because they're only concerned about themselves and how they are feeling. They're self-focused. They're concerned more about what other people are thinking about them than how the other people are feeling. Yeah. So this results in us being obnoxious, critical, depressed, and miserable. You know. And a verse in the scripture which helps us to understand why is Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So. This kind of living will destroy relationships, it will destroy friendships, and it'll lead to our physical destruction. Not going to lose your salvation, but it'll make life miserable for you. Now, secondly, what is humility? If pride is having a false or erroneous view of ourselves, then humility is having a correct or accurate view of ourselves. And we do this by measuring or comparing ourselves to the character of God as described in the Word of God. So, we identify the areas in which we need to improve or change and we ask God to help us in our faith journey to become more and more like him. And so Romans 12 verse 3, the second half from the Amplified Bible, it says, I warn everyone among you not to estimate and think of himself more highly, and we could also say more lowly, than he ought. Not to have an exaggerated opinion of his own importance but to rate his ability with sober judgment, and that means to think straight, to reason correctly, each according to the degree of faith apportioned by God to him. So I'll read that again. I warn everyone among you not to estimate and think of himself more highly than he ought, not to have an exaggerated opinion of his own importance, but to rate his ability with sober judgment, thinking straight, reasoning correctly, each according to the degree of faith apportioned by God to him. Now, that's boasting between ourselves, but what about before God? Verse 2 says, he has something to boast about, but not before God, yeah? If he's done some good works, yeah, he's got something to boast about. We do, but not before God. So as Paul has shown already, if we are willing to be honest and evaluate ourselves according to the standard presented in the law, which is God's perfect moral standard, 
we would understand clearly that we are sinners in desperate need of a saviour. So we've learned that the temptation is to be proud and to justify ourselves and make ourselves look good in front of others. And guess what? That includes God. So it's one thing to, you know, try and make yourself look good in front of other people. But to make yourself look good in front of God, think about that, right? It's got to be the greatest delusion of all. Sinful man thinking that he can achieve the perfect righteousness of God. I consider it to be insanity. I mean, I do it as well. I've got a human nature, you know. So remember, before God, we will never have anything to boast about. So let's go to verse 3 and we'll answer the question. How would the Jews have received this truth? You know, Paul is saying this, and from our perspective as believers, you know, or people who are familiar with the Bible, we would say, yeah, that makes sense. But how would this be received by the Jewish readers, right? For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what did the Jews believe about Abraham and how Abraham was saved? And why was this so shocking to them? So basically they knew that God had declared Abraham to be righteous. So that's accepted, yeah? They would most likely have looked at the tremendous sacrifices and obedience of Abraham and assumed that Abraham was chosen by God because of his good works. Yeah. So what the rabbis actually said is exactly that. So generally, this is a quote from David Guzik, generally the Jewish readers of Paul's day believed that Abraham was justified by his works by keeping the law. Ancient passages from the rabbis say, we find that Abraham our father had performed the whole law before it was given. And Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. The rabbis argued that Abraham kept the law perfectly before it was given, keeping it by intuition or anticipation. Do you know anything about the life of Abraham? Do you know what he did? Well, God told him to go. And did he go? Halfway. He stopped at the border. God told him to leave his family behind. Did he? No, he didn't. He took his father with him. And he couldn't come into the land until his father died. And then we got to the land, there was a drought. And what did he do? He lied about his wife. And, uh, you know, he said, oh, she's my sister. And so she goes in to be with the harem, with the king of Egypt, you know. And he gets blessed with all these extra goodies, you know, extra cattle and sheep. And what a nice guy, you know. I call it, you know, throwing your wife under the bus. Nice guy, yeah? So, Abraham... The Jews have this, you know, whitewashed mentality of him, but he was just like us, you know. He made lots of mistakes. So that's how the Jewish people would have received this as a bit of a shock. What do you mean? What are you talking about? So then we go into the next question, or the next comment is, the only way to be saved is by grace through faith. And this, in verse 3, is really important. And he accounted it to him for righteousness. So God accounted righteousness to Abraham simply because he believed. So again, the scriptures are confirming what we already know from previous chapters in Romans, that all people are saved through faith, by grace through faith. All Abraham was required to do to receive the righteousness of God was to believe. Nothing else. And what does Genesis 15, 6 say? Well, it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham's righteousness was attained through faith. So 
Genesis 15.6 is the verse that Paul is quoting in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So David Guzik says, This is one of the clearest expressions in the Bible of the truth of salvation by grace, through faith. This is the first time believe is used in the Bible and the first time righteousness is used in the Bible. This is the gospel in the Old Testament quoted four times in the New Testament. So you'll find it in Galatians and Romans and a couple other places, right? So it's really important the law of first mention. When the word is used the first time, it gives it its meaning. So the first time that the word believe is used in the Old Testament, or in the whole Bible, is in this verse, in Genesis 15, verse 6. And the first time that the word righteousness is used in the Bible is in Genesis 15, verse 6. So think of the importance of this. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So God is making Abraham as being completely innocent, as if he'd done nothing wrong. And, as we learned before, he receives the righteousness of God. All because he believed. So, yeah, think about that. Believed, righteousness, the first time they're used. So how do we receive righteousness? What's the Bible say? It's only by believing, yeah? Now, Abraham's spiritual birthday. When was Abraham saved? When do you think? Have a guess. When was Abraham born again? Because we're all saved by grace through faith. When was he born again? Interesting, isn't it? Okay, let's have a look. Okay, the scriptures record the day when Abraham was saved, the day he put his hope in the coming Messiah. It was when God declared this. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So being saved or justified is a one-off event that has happened in the life of every believer, right? Now, in John chapter 3, Jesus calls it being born again. So, this is my understanding of it. You may disagree with me, but the way I see it is like this. I don't think that Abraham was actually saved until God declared him to be saved. In Genesis 15 verse 6. All right? And this is after spending several years in the land of Canaan. Abraham had believed in the existence of God and had been partially obedient to God, as we talked about before, right? But he had not been saved. He had been on his journey to full submission and reliance on God for salvation. I've heard of a story, it's a true story. An evangelist came to a church, and the pastor got saved. Serious. The evangelist came to church, and the pastor got saved. He was preaching, he knew all about the Bible, but he hadn't actually believed God. He believed in God, like he believed in God's existence, but he hadn't actually believed God. So there's a big difference. So I'm going to explain that now. But I think there's a process that God uses to bring us to that place of surrender. I've got a quote from John Corson. When is a man saved? Not when he follows God's call obediently or even offers himself sacrificially. But when, like Abraham, he simply says, Lord, I believe you. I believe what you say is true, that I'm righteous in Christ Jesus, that my sins past, present, and future are all forgiven. Now again, in verse 3, it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And David Guzik has a quote. 
the faith that made Abraham righteous wasn't so much believing in God, as we usually speak of believing in God. It was believing God. Those who only believe in God, in the sense of believing he exists, are merely on the same level as demons. James 2.19. Remember what it says there? The demons know that God exists and they tremble, but they are not saved. So it's one thing to believe in the existence of God, but it's another thing to believe God, to put your trust in God. So, I want to now answer the question, what is the difference between accounted righteousness, which is the technical name is justification, and being made righteous, which is a practical righteousness where you know, I no longer sin anymore. Yeah, and The technical name is sanctification. So, Let's look at what this word means, accounted to him as righteousness. Accounted means imputed, reckoned, credited, or counted. So a quote from Wust, he's a, a Greek scholar. Counted is a logosome. It was used in early secular documents. It means to put down to one's account. Let my revenues be placed on deposit at the storehouse. I now give orders generally with regard to all payments actually made or credited to the government. So basically that's examples of how it was used. Yeah. So thus, God put to Abraham's account, placed on deposit for him, credited to him, righteousness. Abraham possessed righteousness in the same manner as a person would possess a sum of money placed in his account in a bank. Now, if someone puts a lot of money in my bank account, does that change who I am practically? Does it change my character? No, it doesn't, does it, right? So just because God has credited Abraham with being righteous, his moral bank account, he's now perfect in God's sight. He's got nothing against him. But what about his character? Has that been transformed yet? No. Okay. So when God accounts someone to be righteous, it's like putting money into their bank account, right? In this case, righteousness and declaring them to be innocent, yeah? So, again, it doesn't say that God made Abraham as righteous as God. That were true. He would never have sinned anymore, right? Instead, God credited or accounted Abraham with the righteousness of God, as we've learned before, yeah? His sin debt was removed, and in its place, God declared Abraham to be as righteous as himself. And this means that in the eyes of God, Abraham had never sinned. He had lived a perfect life, Jesus' life. So when Abraham stands before God, and he stands before God's court, he will be declared innocent. And again, the verse I keep coming back to is 1 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So literally, we receive his perfect life we're credited with his perfect life and our sin debt is taken away and jesus paid that sin debt that's why he was punished instead of us and in return the opposite side of the coin we're treated as if we lived a perfect life completely unfair but that's what god did in his mercy for us so only once abraham was saved only once abraham was declared righteous did god start the process of transformation so Abraham would actually become righteous, to become like God in his character. And it's the same for all of us who believe. 
God first counts us as righteous and then makes us righteous over time. The process is complete when we go to meet him or he comes back to meet us in the air. So again, summarize this, the process of God accounting us as being righteous is called justification, justice if I'd never sinned, while the process of making us righteous practically or in actuality is called sanctification, where when Jesus comes back or we go to meet him when we die, our sin nature is gone and we will be as righteous as God, both in accounting terms and as well as being practically righteous. We will never be able to sin again. So Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 3.18, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So the main point here is I just want you to understand that being accounted righteous doesn't mean you are practically righteous. It just means that in the court of law, your sin debt has been paid and you've been credited with someone else's perfect life, Jesus' life. A quote from David Guzik, The Apostle Paul does not say that Abraham was made righteous in all of his doings, but God accounted Abraham as righteous. Our justification is not God making us perfectly righteous, but counting us as perfectly righteous. After we are counted righteous, then God begins making us truly righteous, accumulating at our resurrection. So people say, oh, you're a Christian, you know, you're being made righteous. How come you're not living that way? Well, it's a process. We're on a journey to become practically righteous, yeah? Now, another application and another question to answer. What promise did Abraham have to believe so he could be saved? Because it is quite general in Romans chapter 3. Abraham believed God and God accounted him to be righteous. What exactly did he believe? So I think this is a good question to answer. When you want to know something about the Word, what's the best commentary on the Bible? It's the Bible itself, right? Use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So most of the time, the Bible will explain the difficult to understand passages somewhere else. Okay. So in this case, we're going to start in Genesis 15, 1-6 to get the context of where Paul was quoting from, and then we'll explain it more. So Genesis 15, 1-6, Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you have given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir. For you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So his faith in this promise that God had made that he's going to have a son. So wouldn't that be good? You know, you're married and God says, You're going to have a son. If you believe that God's going to give you a son, you're going to be saved. Is that as simple as it is? Uh, No, it's not actually. We're going to find out what exactly Abraham was believing. And Paul in Galatians chapter 3 explains it. So Galatians chapter 3 verses 6 to 8. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, 
Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the spiritual sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So now we're in the book of Galatians, and Paul is explaining what this phrase means. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he gives us his big clue. All right? Two big clues. So the first one is, God had already preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, meaning before the time when Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous. And secondly, the gospel has everything to do with the phrase, or the quote, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Now this phrase, in you or in your seed, all the nations shall be blessed, is repeated five times in the book of Genesis to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says in Genesis 26 verse 4, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all of these lands. And in your seed, as capital S, or offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So he's talking about, you know, as scripture goes forward, it gives you more and more details, right? So and in your seed, offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul continues in chapter 3 to explain exactly what this special promise means and just how and why all the nations will be blessed by this one descendant, this physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Galatians 3.16 Now the promises, the covenants, agreements, were decreed and made to Abraham and his seed, his offspring, his heir. He, God, does not say, and to seeds, descendants, or heirs, as if referring to many persons, but and to your seed, capital S, your descendant, your heir. Obviously referring to one individual, and this is a kicker, right? Who is none other than Christ the Messiah. So this is more about just, oh, I want a son, give me a son. Now, I believe that God's going to keep his promise to give me a son. No, no. This is about the Messiah, yeah? So I read Galatians 3.16 again. Now the promises, covenants, agreements were decreed and made to Abraham and his seed, again, capital S, signifying its deity here. He, God, does not say, and to seeds, descendants, heirs, as if referring to many persons, but and to your seed, one person, yeah? Obviously referring to one individual who is none other than Christ the Messiah. So what was Abraham believing? Again, it's not just about having a child. It's not just about Sarah feeling sad that she couldn't have kids, right? Abraham understood that God's promise to him was that one of his descendants would be the promised Messiah, yeah? In you, all the nations will be blessed. So what does it mean? That through Abraham and his descendants, the Messiah would come. And that's the purpose of the Jewish nation. Through the Jewish nation came Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus was a Jew. So, Abraham understood that God's promise to him was that one of his descendants would be the promised Messiah, the Savior who would save people from their sins. Therefore, when Abraham was expressing his concerns that God hadn't yet delivered on his promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son, which was given many years before, it was with the understanding that if they didn't have a son, then there would be no Messiah, no Savior, no Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. 
So you can see why Abraham is quite concerned about this, right? So it's important to understand the context of when Abraham questioned God and why he hadn't yet given him a son. And there's two important things we should know. Firstly, Abraham was rich. God had blessed him with gold and livestock and all that kind of stuff, right? You can read the story. The important thing here is, was Abraham content with his you know, potentially lavish lifestyle? I'm not saying he did have a lavish lifestyle, but he could have if he wanted to, yeah? He had 318 servants born in his house. You know, he was like a small kingdom, you know? But he wasn't concerned about those things. Abraham, secondly, was afraid. If you look at Genesis 15 verse 1, it starts off with God saying to Abraham in a vision, Do not be afraid, Abraham, for I will protect you. Now, why does God tell people, or you know, say to people, Do not be afraid? Because they are afraid, right? Yeah? God wouldn't tell you not be afraid if you're not afraid. So he is afraid. He's scared. Why is he scared? Well, he and his 318 household servants had just defeated a huge army made up of four powerful kings and their troops. And you can read that in Genesis 14. And Abraham was scared that he could die any time. I don't know what exactly he was scared of, but dying um, was probably one of those things, right? He had defeated these armies, these Four powerful, angry, and humiliated kings would want to seek revenge. That's exactly how they worked. You can see that again in Genesis 14. So Abraham, by a miracle with his 318 household servants, the ones born in his house, had defeated four kings and their troops, brought Lot back and rescued Lot and and rescued all the other captives. He was scared. And so God comes and says, Do not be afraid. I'll protect you. So what was Abraham really concerned about now? I believe that Abraham was concerned that the Messiah would come and save him from his sins and make it possible for all mankind to spend eternity with God. And I'll say it again. Abraham knew that if God didn't keep his promise to give Abraham a son, then there would be no Messiah. There would be no hope for all mankind. We'd all be doomed to eternity in hell. So In the book of Hebrews, it gives us a hint of how Abraham was thinking, right? Hebrews 11, 8-10 By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So was Abraham putting his trust in any physical thing? Or was he looking to an eternal life, eternity with God? So Abraham was putting all his hope in the promised Messiah. He recognized that this world was passing away. This world offered him nothing of value, you know. And if he died without the Messiah, there was no hope. So Abraham was looking for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that the promised seed or Messiah would make available to all mankind. Okay, And remember last week we looked at Genesis 3.15. The very day that Adam sinned, God gave the gospel. And we looked at what that meant last week. So all that mattered to Abraham was that God keep his promise to give Abraham a son. Why? 
so the Messiah could and would be born. Abraham understood he was a sinner who needed a saviour. So that's what it means when Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness, right? Counted him as being righteous. He was believing that if God gave him a son, one of those descendants would be the Messiah. And he was actually putting his trust in the coming Messiah. Remember, all people before Jesus came were looking forward to the cross when the Messiah would die on their behalf. Now, a personal reflection. How important is Jesus to you? Are you living, so to speak, in tents like a sojourner or a temporary resident during your time on earth with your whole heart seeking the things which are above? And I encourage you later on to read Colossians 3, 1 to 7. And remembering that you are a citizen of heaven, like Philippians 3.20. Or are you living it up down here, making this world your home with eternity as like a distant thought? You know? So just reflecting on Abraham, he had his eyes, his heart, looking up, looking forward to his reward, looking forward to the heavenly city whose builder and maker is God and not building a big kingdom down here. He had all these servants, but guess what he lived in? He lived in a tent. He could have lived in a palace, but he chose not to. He lived in a tent. He wanted to make sure that his heart was always seeking the things above and not getting too caught up in the material world down here. So, are we living up down here, making this world our home with eternity as a distant thought? Or are we, as Colossians 3, 1 says, seeking the things which are above? Now, I've got an application to finish with. Misdirected zeal and its tremendous cost. So, at the start we talked about the Israelites, the Jews, and how they would view Abraham as being saved. Or, you know, they would have said, oh, he did a lot of good works. He kept the law, all that kind of stuff. That's misdirected zeal, okay? And it has a tremendous cost. Romans 10, 1 to 3. Let's read about this mistake, this misunderstanding, and what it costs them, right? Romans 10, 1 to 3. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is a mis misdirected zeal misdirected enthusiasm yeah They're putting all this work into something that's going to give them nothing in return for they don't understand god's way of making people right with himself which is how salvation by grace through faith refusing to accept god's way they cling to their own way of getting right with god but what's their own way it's by trying to keep the law okay so think about what this misdirected zeal, this misunderstanding that they have concerning how someone is saved has cost the nation of Israel. They've rejected God's grace. They've rejected Jesus' gift of himself at the cross. And they have suffered terribly. For those who are under the law, Galatians 3 verses 10 to 14 says, you will find yourself under a curse, yeah? Instead of being able to receive his blessings. Now, a works-based mentality means death to relationship. Any relationship, and not just with God. If I approach God with the attitude of, I did this, so I deserve that, then I have the same works or merit-based attitude towards others as well. You know, I will tend to keep score, and I find in my own mind that people always owe me. You know, I've always done more for them than they've done to me, and I end up with this, you know, chip on my shoulder. 
And that person, if I'm doing that, I'll never experience a close love relationship with anyone. So real relationships are based on grace. So this is a practical application here, right? On freely giving and doing things for the other person without expecting anything in return. And so to finish up, I've got a fairly long quote from John Corson. It's an application. And see if you can relate to what he says. If Abraham had been pronounced righteous because he left Ur, or because he was willing to sacrifice his son, then he would have been given salvation as a reward. God would have been paying off a debt. But Paul's argument is that it was nothing Abraham did or didn't do other than believe what God said was true, which justified him. So too, if you are attempting to work your way into God's favor, either prior or subsequent to your salvation, then he owes justification to you. Whenever we subconsciously think, Now, Lord, I prayed a whole bunch today, so I know it's going to be a great day. The implication is, Lord, you owe me. And that nullifies grace. God will not be a debtor to any man. He won't owe us anything. That is why there will be no boasting in heaven, not only with regard to our salvation, but with regard to any of God's blessings. A lot of times we forget that and think because of our great faith or our prevailing prayer, our diligent works or our dedicated devotion to God, that God has blessed our life. It's a hard thing to say, but it's true. Some of the greatest blessings both in my life and flowing through my life have come when I have not been in prayer, when I have not had strong faith, when I have not been what I should or want to be. God's blessings during those times remind me that everything that comes my way is because of grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. This creates in me a heart that wants to love the Lord and worship Him rather than a tendency to say, if I've accomplished this with three hours of prayer, I wonder what I could do with six. Am I saying we should never pray? If you're praying to earn reward, give it up. But if you're praying because you enjoy the Lord, are amazed at his goodness to you, because you want to participate with him in what he's doing on the earth, because you love to spend time with him, or because you're thankful for him and want to be close to him, then pray. If you get up at three o'clock tomorrow morning and pray in order to fulfill an obligation, God won't be impressed a whit. But if you get up at three o'clock just to enjoy him, he'll be blessed. The man, woman, or congregation that truly understands that salvation is all about grace will find themselves praying, worshipping, studying, witnessing, not because they're trying to earn God's blessing, but because they're responding to the one who's already been so good to them. So, in conclusion, we all need to ask God to search our hearts and see if there's any wicked way in me. Any legalistic attitude or workspace attitude needs to go. It will not just affect my relation with God, but all other relationships as well. And remember, a workspace mentality is offensive to God. We'll go into that more next week, why it's offensive. But for now, we'll just say this together. We can pray this together. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you 
and lead me along the path of everlasting life. And I just want to finish with the scripture just to encourage us to bring all this together. Titus 3, 3 to 8. Again, we can read this together. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These are good and profitable to men. So the last verse there, what does it say? Should be careful to maintain good works. What's the motive for that? To earn our salvation or be thankful for our salvation? It's to be thankful for our salvation, for the thankful for what God has already given us. Yet not to earn those good things, but be thankful that we've already received them. Father, I thank you that you have given us this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the example of Abraham. Help us to remember that we're looking at his life. It wasn't because of anything he did, any sacrifice, any obedience. It was simply because he was looking for a Messiah, a Savior to save him from his sin. And Lord, as we do that, as we recognize that we are sinners, we too can believe you. We can believe God. We can understand that Jesus is the Savior, that when he died on the cross, it was a full payment for all the sins of all mankind. And we too, if we repent and believe, can receive the gift of eternal life. So we praise you for this. And thank you that we don't have to worry about trying to be good, to please you, because you already love us. Instead, we just need to be thankful for everything you have given us already, are giving us, and want to give us in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.